Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. You're in for a real treat today. I'm Rick Barrera, your host for the Heart of Leaders podcast, and I've got Colleen Abdullah with me, and she is a firecracker. She's on the faculty of our Heart of Leaders program, and when she speaks, the room lights up. Colleen has served in just about every role you can imagine in her 30-plus years in the telecom industry, including stints for Netlink Satellite Operations, TCI, and AT&T Broadband before becoming the CEO of Wide Open West, WOW, in 2002. WOW was a competitor to the giants in the industry and grew to have over a billion dollars in revenue under her guidance. Colleen served as the CEO chair for 14 years and then on the board for another year before leaving after completing a successful four-year transition plan. Today we're going to get to know Colleen and what makes her tick. In our next episode, we're going to learn how she used heart-led leadership to drive extraordinary results for WOW against all the odds. Right now, let's meet Colleen. Colleen, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Good to be with you. So you're from Canada, and you started out in public relations and marketing, working for an ad agency. How did you end up as the CEO of a telecom provider? (laughs) Yeah, the connection there is that I was in Calgary, Alberta, as an account executive, and one of my clients was a theme park, the opening of the first theme park in Western Canada. And we launched uh, without any outside help, but we were going into the second year of the account, and I thought, you know, it's much harder your second year when it's all not all new and in the launch phase. So I suggested we bring a consultant in from the United States, since the U.S. has had theme parks for decades before we did. And I worked with a gentleman from Cincinnati, Ohio, We had a successful strategic plan we put together. The client accepted it. The second year was a success, and I got a call out of the blue from an ad agency in Cincinnati who the consultant I knew was a friend of, and they had a large theme park in the city that was looking for a new account executive with experience, and so I just happened to have that. And they called, asked me to fly out to Cincinnati and interview, and I did. Did that for about a year when my second client with the new agency was uh, Warner Amex, which is now was Time Warner. But back in 1983-84, it was still called Warner Amex. It was fairly new industry and... They hired our ad agency to help them with some franchise renewal issues and marketing issues. So I wrote a strategic plan for them and was fortunate it was successful and met all their objectives. And from that, 
I met another person who was in cable and asked me to come and take a look at what they were doing. And next thing I knew, I was eight years in the field in cable operations, moving from Cincinnati to Cape Cod to Grand Rapids, Michigan, then back to Cincinnati and then to Denver. Wow. So that's That's how it happened. The long way around. Yes. So you worked in a primarily male-dominated industry. So what were some of the guiding principles that, you know, enabled your career to be so successful? You know, I think it was um, a lot of what we learn comes from our family system, right? And my father was Lebanese, my mom was Romanian, and my father's family was big and dominant and boisterous and very male dominated. (laughs) And I was around my uncles and my dad and a lot of the men um, taught me. We had sort of this family system of which you needed to be able to be teased. You needed to have a good sense of humor. You needed to not take yourself too seriously and uh, sort of hang with your uncles and all of those males and not, you know, get sensitive about things. And that really helped, I think. I didn't know it would help me, but it helped shape my masculine along with my feminine because I had three sisters, so there were four girls and then my younger brother. So I was around the feminine a lot and around the masculine a lot. And each of us, right, you have a feminine Uh, side to you and a masculine and so do I and I think to be able as a woman to be able to navigate your way through a business and as you said male dominated environment you've got to be able to be to switch first to honor your masculine and your feminine to try to balance that and to know how to navigate the environment, knowing when to go into your masculine, when to go into your feminine. Um, and that really served me well in, in a male-dominated industry. I knew how to, you know, jest with the guys, be, be strong and assertive when I needed to be, but also do it with honoring my feminine. I think, unfortunately, women, we didn't have many role models, right? And... So a lot of women, when they got into male-dominated environments, thought they had to take on a male persona and leaving their feminine behind. And I don't think that they're quite as successful as women who are able to honor both. Very cool. That's that's interesting. So your passion seems to be for sales and marketing and people, yet, you know, you did long stints in operations, so how did that work? Yeah, I had, I think fortunately the environments I was in, both at the ad agency and then when I got into cable, you know, cable was, was growing and fairly young industry. And so you wore lots of hats and there wasn't all this structure around, well, you haven't done this, so you can't do that. Or you don't have this title, so you can't attend this meeting. It was very open and collaborative and Whatever you showed an interest in and a propensity for, you could go do. <laughs> and so, so that environment was really good for me. And when you were in marketing in cable in the 80s, 
I mean, it was a quasi-monopolistic industry, right? I mean, it was growing. There was no competition. Satellite was very small on C-band satellite at the time when high-powered DBS came into being later in the 90s. That caused some uh, competition when telecommunications company could get into the video business. That caused some competition. But prior to that all happening, it was a fairly monopolistic environment. And so to spend money on um, marketing and customer retention and customer education, I mean, it just wasn't done. And the billing systems were fairly simplistic and not very... um, effective in being able to do any kind of creative campaigns. And so to be good at marketing, you had to understand operations. You had to understand what the call center reps were going through when they took a call, what happened for the technicians out in the field, how the billing system worked, um, what the financial goals were. You just had to understand all the elements in order to do a good job in selling and communicating and marketing the products. And so I just, by learning what I needed to learn in order to be good in marketing and sales, I realized I was quite uh, good at, at operations and I enjoyed that part of the business and bringing everybody together interdepartmentally in order to achieve our mutual goals, and that's how I, you know, sort of showed up and got the opportunities to move into an operating role. So how did you come to your leadership philosophy? Did you always have it in your bones, or did you did you sort of develop it along the way? You know, I think some of it was conscious and some of it was unconscious. I think the unconscious part, again, came from my family system. Um, my father was an entrepreneur and worked in the restaurant business, and I watched and observed how people were treated by my parents and basically learned sort of three unspoken truth principles about leadership. And one was know what you don't know. You know, my father was a charismatic man who was great at relationships. People loved coming to see him in his restaurants, but he also knew the areas of the operation that he wasn't great at. So he, he paid to get really good people into those positions so that they complimented him. And I think as that's a really strong, important leadership quality and understanding to have is that you don't know it all and you're not going to be good at it all. So know what you're good at. And you're never going to know it all. Right. Know what you're good at. Know what you're not good at. That's sort of the definition of humility, I think, is embracing your gifts and your talents and embracing also what you're not very good at. And my father was taught me that. And I think the second principle was um, you're not better than anyone else, no matter how much money you have or what title you have or what you own. You're not better than anyone else. So don't treat people like you are and don't let others treat you like they are. And so I would see my parents being exactly the same with the janitor as they were with, say, if they met the prime minister of Canada. Um, And I loved that. And we were taught that through modeling. Matter of fact, none of these things were stated openly. It was all just modeled. And I think unconsciously I absorbed it 
And the next thing, the, the last principle I learned um, was share the wealth. You know, that everybody makes it happen, so everybody should benefit. Obviously, at different levels, if you're the owner, you're going to take home more than the cook or the person who cleans the kitchen, but everybody should benefit to some degree when the business does well. So my parents would do that. If there was a profit at the end of the year, everybody got a bonus. If there was a family hurting, everybody came together to help them. And so I took those principles quite unconsciously into my professional life, and then I started experiencing things that didn't really match up with that. And I couldn't quite (laughs) understand it, you know? Um, What I ended up seeing is that, yeah, title did matter, and what you owned mattered, and who you knew mattered, and how much money you made, and um, how many employees you had, and... um, that all seemed to matter, and it, it didn't seem to matter how you got there. And it didn't seem to matter um, what you had to do to get results, just get results. And I observed that, and I tried to, when I became a leader of a department or several departments, I made sure that I didn't lead that way, that how did matter. And... Um, we would get the results, but we would get it by focusing on the how. So I think I, I gave, got my first leadership understanding from my family system and then from observing things as I started to work and, um, and honed it from there. So did you, did you actively push back on that? Because, you know, what, what you're describing was very much uh, my experience in corporate and it, and it, it really bothered me and Mm -hmm. and, and I became almost instantly a rebel and Mm -hmm. and you seem to have sort of a rebellious personality. (laughs) So were you you an early rebel? (laughs) (laughs) I would, I don't know if I would have ever coined it that way because, um, I think what I learned quite early on was that whole understanding of the concept of sphere of influence. I always knew what I I would push back where I could. And when the walls went up, when the resistance occurred, I knew enough to then let it go and work on what I had influence over. So that would be, you know, the departments that reported to me or the department that I was part of. Um, Because after a time period of trying to push it through and trying to have influence on the bigger picture and when you just had, didn't have the power or control or influence to do so, you don't give up. You then say, okay, where do I have the influence? What is my sphere of influence? And then start there and hope that through modeling and influence of towards others, um, that it'll, it'll spread. So that's how I did it when I, prior to becoming CEO. So who were your mentors? other than your parents? You know, I, I professionally, I think at the first agency in Calgary, it was um, the, the structure was such that you were account executive reporting to an account supervisor, and his name was David Parker. And um, he was a very spiritual man, um, very humble, 
smart, very relational. I'd say he was probably my first mentor. The um, vice president of the ad agency, Jack, who who actually brought me into the agency and gave me a chance, he was also a mentor, very much people-focused, also understood that how matters, you know, and that our agency was going to be different from other agencies. So I'd say those two were my first, had the biggest impression on me in the first three years of my career. I absolutely have to say, you know, that outside of the professional arena, I think the greatest mentor I've had is is the spiritual leaders of our time. You know, I am I am a Christian, so it would be Christ and the principles of Christ, but I respect and appreciate other spiritual beliefs like Buddha and the principles of Buddhism, um, Judaism, and the principles and tenets of Judaism. So I think the spiritual tenets have really been uh, guides to me as a person and as a leader because in Gandhi, I've read a lot about Gandhi and, and Gandhi's approach to leadership. I just really have always fundamentally believed that leadership is um, a privilege and it's a privilege to be held and honored and respected and that you are there as a leader to serve others, not to be served. That's going to that's going to lead into our our next section. In your next interview, we're going to get into the, you know, your leadership styles and beliefs and things like that. I want to talk a little bit now about your deep belief in doing charitable work. Where where did that come from? Again, I think it comes from a really early early childhood impression in that you have no control over what family system you're born into. And the fact that I was born into a loving, upper-middle-class family, I had no doing, no say in that. And so I would look around as a little girl and observe the kids in school that weren't dressed as well or weren't as clean, Um and I would wonder at that and how they would get teased or they would be included. And that would just break my heart. And I would think, that's just not right. We're all people. We all feel. We all care. We all want to be loved. We all want to be part of something. And I just had that feeling at a very, very young age. So when I was blessed abundantly with resources, um, and even before I had a lot of money, my early 20s, when I was first working, the first thing I thought about after getting that first paycheck was, what do, how much of this should I give away? How much of this can I afford to give away? That, that, is, not, that is not the first inclination for the typical receiver of a first paycheck. Well, I felt so rich. It was nine hundred dollars no, a month. No, exactly. I I, I remember feeling <laughs> was, rich too because I was yeah, making was like, you know ten thousand a year. Uh, right. My <laughs> rent was um, my share of the rent was I think a hundred and twenty. I was sharing a place with someone, and I think our rent was five hundred, and so mine was two fifty. 
and I was making 900 and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm rich and, and my expenses are only maybe half this and I can give some of this away. And so I think the first thing I did was sponsor a child back then in my really? early 20s. And, um, and that was the first way I did it. And so I think that's where my deep belief in, in being kind and good and generous with your time and your resources is that if you are blessed with those things, with the resources um, to help others, you need to do it because um, there's no reason why you're not one of those people in need of help. It was just, you know, fortunate. And so you need to take that good fortune and blessing and you need to spread it. So you were telling me a story before we got on air here today, which I, I want you to tell to our listeners about your nieces and Oh, right, right. I, um, I was able to put a little bit of money in the Denver Foundation and called it the Abdullah Family Fund and have given money to different nonprofits through that fund. And uh, I realized that my nieces and nephews had all grown to be in their mid-30s, late-20s, and I only had three left that were fairly young, 21, 17, and 15. So I went to my two nieces and nephew and said, I have a little bit of money in this fund, and I'm wondering if you three would like to be advisors to the fund. We would meet once a year. You would do your homework throughout the year on various nonprofits, um, and I'd like them to be small grassroots organizations so that our money will be impactful because it's not a lot of money. Um, and I'd fly you to Denver and we would sit and have our meeting and you would present your choices and we would go from there. So when they came to Denver for the first meeting, I'd ask the Denver Foundation to start us off with a meeting at the foundation office and just answering any questions they may have, teaching them about philanthropy and what it means and why it's important. And my eldest niece, 21, Ava, kind of opened the session with, um, I'm not sure I completely understand the difference between philanthropy and charity. Could you explain it? And a great question. So, isn't that a great question? It's not one I can and answer. <laughs> I'm glad she asked her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so our friend at the Denver Foundation was so articulate. She said, well, great question. Let me answer it with a story. These people are walking across a riverbank, and they see dead babies coming floating in the water, and they immediately make a line, and they start going down into the water to bring the babies out one by one. And two of the people leave the line and start running. And the others say, where are you going? And they say, we're going to see if we can find out who are putting these babies in the water. And she said, that's the difference between charity and philanthropy. Charity are the people that got into the water and are saving the babies. It is, it is fulfilling a need an immediate need, feeding people, sheltering people, helping people in need in the moment. The philanthropy are those two people who 
ran away to find out what was causing it and how to stop it from happening. That's the difference between the two. Neither one is better than the other. They are both needed in the world society. But that's the difference. And I love that story. Yeah, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. So you are, were, I don't know if i am got this correct, the chairperson for the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center? So what, what is that? What do they do? Yeah, it's an organization that is, I think, now in its 35th year, founded by an incredible woman, Sherry Schenk, who was a lawyer, I think, in the Pittsburgh area when she came across a case some 35 years ago, child law case, and she wasn't familiar with child law, but she just saw how horribly the laws were not addressing the needs of abused children and how much the system needed to be improved. And so she moved to Denver for other reasons and started, uh, I think it was called the Children's Law Center for a while, and then we eventually renamed it to Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. And they had, and when I was involved, a charter of sort of three main objectives. One was to be guardian ad litems, lawyers who were pro bono lawyers taking care of uh, children's cases that were allocated to them. And, and, and what kind of children's cases are they? I mean, what, what are you advocating and, for exactly? Well, they're children that uh, end up in the foster care system. They're taken from their home for various reasons, for abuse, neglect, and they're put into temporary housing or right into foster care, and they need a lawyer to represent them uh, if the case goes to court. And many times it does. And so court lawyers, they're called guardian ad litems because they're usually paid for by the state, are part of the foster care system or through an organization like the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center. So they actually took cases on, represented children and their families or loved ones. Um, They also taught at DU Child Law Uh, They had a a collaboration with DU, Denver University, and then they also trained foster parents on what they needed to know about the law and what their rights were as a foster parent and if they wanted to move towards adoption, for example, what they needed to do. And I moved to Denver uh, in 89, started dating this gentleman who um, I, we were out for dinner one night and I said, I want to get involved with a nonprofit. Um, do you know of one? He said, well, I'm on this board. I'm coming off of it soon. So let me introduce you to the founder. What, what matters to you? And I said, well, the rights of, you know, abuse bothers me, abuse of any kind. And he said, what about abuse of children? And I said, well, absolutely. So he introduced me to Sherry. She told me what they did. She explained how broken the system is, how overtaxed the court system is, how the um, lawyers are that represent these children, the social workers are overtaxed, um, the laws need to be changed. And I was sold immediately, and I was part of that organization for, gosh, 20 years as either a board chair or a donor contributor. And it's an amazing organization. Wow, that's 
That's really extraordinary work. And I ended up adopting my daughter through that experience because I remember we would open every board meeting. I always have believed whether you're nonprofit or your corporate business, you should always stay close to the customer. And so we would open every board meeting with a client story. And, oh, my gosh, these were heartbreaking stories of what was happening to these kids. And one story was about the problem with aging kids, that if they're not adopted out of the foster system by five, six years old, they were destined to be in the foster system for their life till they aged out and emancipated at 18 which is a very young age to emancipate out, be out on your own. Um, And I made some statement in the meeting like, oh my gosh, these kids, these older kids deserve and need love and families as well. And one of the lawyers in the meeting said, well, you could adopt one. And I'm like, (laughs) well, not me, somebody, but not me. (laughs) Time to put your money where your mouth is. (laughs) Exactly. And I was... 37 years old, single, and, you know, vice president of TCI at the time, I think executive vice president. I lived in a nice home here in Wash Park. And so for three weeks after that comment was made, it just wouldn't leave me. And, you know, why, why, why don't I? Why aren't I doing more? And so I went through the process and met my daughter, who was 11 years old at the time. And not in a very healthy foster home. And um, about a week after meeting her, she came to live with me, and I went straight to adoption because I think there's a lot of inherent issues with fostering for the child. You know, they don't always feel part of the family, and they know they're still a ward of the state. Um, And so a year later, she was formally my daughter, and... She is now 31 years old and has a four-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old grandson that is the love of my life, and it's worked out really well. But I was able to have that opportunity because of my understanding and work at Children's Law Center. Wow, that's extraordinary. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Well, so... Let's talk about Colleen the person. What do you do for fun when you're not working? (laughs) Mm, I love, um, we have a home in Breckenridge, so I love being up in the mountains and hiking. I love golf. Um, Hiking, biking, golfing, reading, traveling, love to travel, and being with family and friends. That's great. So we're going to have you back, and we're going to talk about, we're going to get into the real leadership strategies and tactics and learn about what you did when you were at WOW and how you got the great numbers that you posted and how you turned that company around and grew it and all the things that you did. But in closing for this session, what career advice or hot tips would you like to leave with our heart-led listeners? (laughs) Hot tips. Hot tips. You know, I was I you know, was asked years <laughs> well, I was asked <laughs> years ago to be in this mentoring circle and one thing that was unique about this process was you could never give advice. 
because what the facilitators of that group said is that when you give advice, it's a lose-lose situation because if you give advice and the person doesn't take it and it doesn't work out, it's sort of this, nah, nah, see, you should have listened to me. Or if they do take your advice and it doesn't work out, oh my gosh, you shouldn't have listened to me. And their point was... (laughs) And I love that perspective because their point was if somebody is going through an experience and comes to you for, quote, advice, simply share a story or experience in your life that is related to that. And they will take from that story what they need to know. And then it is up to them to apply it however they wish. So I kind of, since that experience, stay away from giving direct advice (laughs) to anyone. Um, Well, good. Tell me a story. (laughs) And I don't know if I have a specific story to share other than to say that there's something really magical about paying attention to the heart and your soul, because that is where our wisdom lies. We think it's in our brain, but our brain can be cluttered and influenced and manipulated, but your heart cannot be. So to be a heart-led leader is to truly be um, at your incredible best that can't be manipulated, can't and doesn't have a lot of noise and influences around it because it is pure. It is the purest part of your being. So I love what you guys are doing, focusing on heart-led leadership because it is at the core of where all our wisdom lies. And you have a lot of it, and I appreciate your sharing it with our listeners. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Would you like to meet Colleen Abdullah in person and hang out? You can. Just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders training program in Denver. Call us right now at 858-248-3162 or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.